Welcome everyone to the Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap Show, where we learn how to use the resources inside the Access Pass. If you're subscribed to our resource library, then you have an instant access to all these resources that we're going to be talking about today. If you're not a member, you can get started today by heading to therapyinsights.com. If you're listening to this episode on a podcast or watching the video on YouTube and you want official CU credit, head to therapyinsights.com and click on CEUs. Fill out the form for the PT Resource Roadmap Show, episode number two, and you'll get your certificate of completion. I'm your host, Shweta. We also have our Therapy Insights writers, Ross and Troy, with us today. <clears throat> hey, everyone. Yeah, hey. So real quick, before we get started, I would like to talk about our disclosures. Uh, since this is being offered for CEUs, we need to verbalize our disclosures. All of us here are being paid by Therapy Insights to run this show. So let's get started. We have a great lineup of resources this month from tips for keeping your cartilage healthy, heart rate variability monitoring, to ankle brachial index and symptoms and differentiation of leg pain. Let's get started with our first resource. So the first resource that we're gonna dive into today is uh, tips for keeping your cartilage healthy. Um, and this resource was produced by Ross. So I'll let Ross talk about it a little bit. Yeah, um, so uh, in my practice, we see a lot of uh, people with hip and knee arthritis and so uh, I thought it would be useful uh, both for myself and for other clinicians to have kind of an educational handout that can be given at the first visit for people who come in with knee or hip pain, kind of talking about uh, what osteoarthritis is um, and some tips and strategies for uh, keeping your cartilage healthy. Um, so uh, it talks about how maintaining a healthy weight is important. Um, and um, it talks about some statistics, like how people with a BMI over 30 have about a doubled risk of developing arthritis compared to people with a BMI that's normal. Um, and talks a little bit about, um, it's not really supposed to be prescriptive for weight loss, but it, it uh, talks a little bit about um, some targets that you could shoot for as, uh, as far as like 0.25% uh, of your body weight per week, which is uh, um, about a half pound for a 200 pound person, which is very achievable um, and how that has been shown to be beneficial for people with osteoarthritis. Um, and it talks about uh, the role of diet with that and how it might be helpful to talk with a dietitian or other healthcare provider to uh, get started with that. And then it talks about um, how losing weight in general, whether it's through uh, low carb dieting or low fat dieting, um, both can be effective for losing weight. Um, touches a little bit on um, <clears throat> inflammation. It talks about how there are some pro-inflammatory cells with uh, knee arthritis in general. The focus of this piece was on osteoarthritis, but I also touched a little bit on rheumatoid arthritis and uh, the um, inflammation that you see in osteoarthritis is typically kind of a milder, uh, low-grade inflammation, whereas with rheumatoid arthritis, it's a high-grade, more severe inflammation. Um, and uh, 
you talked a little bit about that and how losing weight in general reduces um, systemic inflammation and how that can be helpful. Um, and then I touched a little bit on anti-inflammatory diets uh, and how the research right now for osteoarthritis is kind of inconclusive for anti-inflammatory diets, but uh, there is stronger evidence for anti-inflammatory diets being helpful with rheumatoid arthritis. And it might be just because rheumatoid arthritis is a um, characterized by higher levels of inflammation compared to osteoarthritis. So it kind of just touches on that. And it's, again, it's not prescriptive, but it's something that someone could read and uh, um, could maybe open their minds to treatment going down that avenue there. Um, and then it talks a little bit about exercise and how um, if you're able to walk, even walking, uh, referenced a study that found that people who walked frequently had uh, less severe joint space narrowing as they aged compared to people who did not. And so um, give some simple tips for that and how you can use trekking poles if you have pain with uh, with walking. And then it talks a little bit about strengthening and how that can be helpful, especially for knee arthritis uh, um, and the role of quad strengthening being helpful for that. Um, so yeah, and that's pretty much the piece. It's kind of... Uh, has some tidbits that can be useful for clinicians as well, but really it's something to kind of reinforce uh, what we say in clinic. Cause a lot of times we, we tell patients things and I think having that handout that reinforces what you say might help with buy-in. So that's kind of what this uh, handout is for. Cool. Thank you, Ross. All right, um, our next resource is an article. This was also produced by Ross about blueberries improving pain, gait performance and inflammation in individuals with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. Yeah, so this study um, was kind of in line, I guess, with that uh, piece that I just talked about. Um, so essentially, uh, this is a study where they looked at, they used freeze-dried berries. Um, I can't remember the dose, right? Oh, 40 grams of freeze-dried berries, um, which is not a particularly large dose of berries. Um, and uh, how in this study, um, there were some positive effects on pain and gait performance. And this was compared to um, a placebo, which I believe was some sort of sugar, um, a maltodex, maltodextrin. And so it's possible since that's pro-inflammatory theoretically, you know, um, that might confound your results a little bit, but, um, I thought it's something, you know, telling people that they could have some blueberries is probably not going to hurt them, uh, and for most people, you know? And so, uh, I thought it was kind of a cool study that, um, something that might be beneficial for people with arthritis. Ross, I was actually curious, like when they say that there are um, differences, there weren't really significant differences between groups, but rather within groups. I'm curious, like, what exactly are they mean by that? Like, did they, you know, even with like maltodextrin, like some of the placebo group people did not really show effects and some really showed drastic effects like what was going on there exactly you know some of that could be due to effect sizes as you touched on um and some of that could also be um i can't remember what the sample size was with this study i don't think it was incredibly large and sometimes you need a larger sample size to see those between group differences when you can see them within groups with a smaller sample size um again i don't remember exactly how many people were in this study um but I suspect that that might have been part of the reason why you wouldn't see those between group differences as easily as you would see the within group differences. 
Yeah, I, I think it sounds really interesting. Like I've never really heard about like blueberries impacting osteoarthritis. So that would be something that, you know, you could possibly have your patients try. Yeah, yeah. It's something that's simple and, and you know, probably not going to hurt them is the way I see it. Absolutely. Okay, our third resource is how and when to calculate ankle brachial index. And it's by, it was produced by Troy. So I'm going to have Troy talk about it a little bit. Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for bringing me on. So um, yeah, this piece is, is really talking a lot about ankle brachial index. And if you haven't heard of that before, it's really a relationship between your blood pressure, specifically your systolic blood pressure, right? So that uh, that higher number that we often record when we're taking taking pressures, um, it's a relationship between um, the pressure in the upper extremity and the pressure distally in the lower extremity. So uh, why we really care is it can be indicative of a couple of different pathologies, primarily like peripheral vascular disease would be the number one thing that you'd be watching for here. So what you do, I mean, I guess, Ultimately, I guess how I see this resource really being used and managed in the clinic, and this is one of my favorite types of resources, first off, which is this is something that it's got a direction sheet on it. So, you know, I don't calculate ankle brachial index all that often, right? Um, so, so when I do it, it's like, it's nice to have an, a sheet there for me. That's really what this first page is about. And then the second page, which is also super nice, is that's what I, I just fill out and I put it in, uh, in, into my, you know, documentation and have them scan it straight into, uh, into medical records, which is really convenient. Um, you print off a second copy if you wanted to send, send your patient home with one or send your patient to the physician with one after the fact, um, if, if you were, if you were worried about it. But, um, so the first page really talks a lot about kind of who's at risk for issues with ankle brachial index. Um, so it lists off some different kind of comorbidities and uh, and risk factors, I guess, associated with that. But how you actually perform the perform the measure, it's not overly complicated. The one the one uh, limiter that I feel like a lot of folks have um, is maybe access to a Doppler, right? Um, which is you know an auditory way uh, to really yeah kind of measure. Um, Pulse. So, right. Normally, we would we would you know be listening in with our um, uh, stethoscopes to to hear blood pressures. In this case, we you know put in headphones or you just have it set to um, uh, to make kind of noise in the clinic, and you can hear the blood kind of uh, whooshing past this uh, this Doppler. So, you're going to have your patient come in if if you're concerned about this or trying to screen for PVD. Um, you're going to have them come in, take their, um, take their blood pressure in, in both arms. They should be the same, uh, in general, they're within about 10, uh, systolic, uh, blood pressure should be about within 10 uh, millimeters of mercury from one side to the other. Um, but you're going to, you're going to record their highest uh, value on either their right or their left side. And then, um, and then you're going to, you're going to lay them down normally is, is where you actually will take the, um, uh, the, pr the pressures, um, in the ankle and you put that same blood pressure cuff around somebody's, uh, around somebody's foot around just, just proximal to the ankle, It'll occlude blood flow. And you're going to listen to the dorsalis pedis artery as well as the tibial artery, um, which, uh, you know, on the sheet kind of 
gives you an idea of where to palpate those. If you're unfamiliar, they're they're you know um, they're some sometimes they're a little bit more challenging. But yeah, occlude blood flow. Listen in with that Doppler. Right, we're going to make sure we can't hear any blood flow, and then record those values when we first start hearing um, the flow. We'll record the higher value of uh, of either lower extremity. You could record it for both right and left leg, but odds are good that they should be relatively similar, um, right? Peripheral vascular disease is a, um, uh, yeah, complications associated with like fatty plaque formations in the uh, peripheral uh, vasculature. And so, you know, to have it biased specifically in one location over the other extremity is, is pretty unlikely. So um, record that. The second page has a nice um, uh, schematic of what's normal, what's abnormal, when should we be um, like very concerned about this versus are you kind of uh, getting close to uh, to experiencing some some risks associated. So um, I hope it's going to be useful for for the clinicians just uh, as as a quick, easy way to, you know, you got a patient coming in that's having maybe uh, leg pain with uh, walking after a couple of minutes or something like that. And and hasn't been screened for this or diagnosed with PVD, great one to pull out and uh, um, kind of be uh, first line of defense, I suppose, for, um, yeah, for, for your patients. Cool. Um, I, I feel like I have still seen like clinicians use like the stethoscope too, because Doppler is not that easily available. So I was just thinking yeah. how reliable it is versus, you know, using like an actual Doppler. Yeah. You know, I can't speak to how specific the air is or, or the magnitude of that air, but I, I do think it's actually relatively significant. Um, so I'm not going to tell you to, you know, if you're worried about it and you don't have a Doppler, you know, maybe check it out, but I, I don't know, you would really have to use your own clinical judgment on how much you, um, really value the results of that. Um, I will say one thing, I feel like a lot more clinics with the, you know, kind of with one of the new PT crazes of, um, uh, blood flow restriction, there's a lot of protocol related to, um, yeah, to they, there's Dopplers that you get if you have a BFR or blood flow restriction cuff. So I feel like they're a little bit more accessible than they maybe were five or 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, either way, it's not, they're not necessarily cheap. You know, if you're going to buy one, uh, they're probably, you know, maybe three, three to $500, um, is what I would expect. So yeah, cheaper or, or more expensive than, than your stethoscope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but I would, I guess I would caution folks to, uh, of using a stethoscope, um, alone. God, you may as well just buy it with a BFR set. Cause I think that for our clinic, we got it with a BFR set, and I think it was only like 150. I think it was cheaper to buy it with a set. It was a better deal. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I had no idea about that. Thank you for bringing that up. But like you said, like possibly, like if they're really into BFR, then yeah, that makes sense. For a clinic-wise, 150 bucks does seem a little more reasonable. So yeah. 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 Sure. Awesome. We'll move on to our next resource. This is a nice little two-page handout about heart rate variability monitoring. So I will let Ross talk about it. Ross, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. Um, so this uh, resource is 
probably it's more with the clinician in mind. It's uh, um, unless you have a really fitness minded uh, clients, like someone who does a lot of uh, CrossFit. Some, I think that's getting more popular among that community to monitor heart rate variability. Um, so they might find it useful as well. Um, but heart rate variability is essentially a measurement of a parasympathetic nervous system activity. So every time your heart beats, even though we think of heart rate as being something really regular, um, there's little millisecond differences in time between each beat. And if you have a lot of parasympathetic activity to the heart, you have a high variability in those beats. Whereas if you have a lot of stress and sympathetic activity, then it's a more regular uh, beat pattern. And so uh, one way to kind of measure whether you're getting into that uh, kind of more recovery mode, that parasympathetic state where your body's repairing and regenerating and doing some of the things that we like before you stress it again. Um, there's some research suggesting that heart rate variability can be a way to evaluate that. And so this piece kind of talks about what heart rate variability is. It goes into a little bit of what I just talked about, um, talking about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, um, the role of stress with heart rate variability, how things like sleep depth deprivation, dehydration can play into heart rate variability. Um, and uh, um, it talks a little bit about um, different devices that you can use. So you can get, um, there's electrocardiography devices where you actually hook on uh, electrodes or you wear a chest strap. That's not incredibly common. The, the main benefit to that is you can use it during high intensity exercise and it will be uh, accurate whereas the optical sensors are less accurate during high intensity exercise. Um, for the purposes of measuring parasympathetic uh, activity, um, it's really the first thing in the morning or overnight uh, measurements that are more important anyway. And so there's actually some apps. So I used an app for a while, it was like 10 bucks or something where it would basically you wake up, you put your finger over, your camera light and it'll measure your heart rate variability over a five minute period. And so then you can consistently, as long as you, so you have to do it the same time of day, same position, try to keep everything as consistent as you can. And then you can kind of see what your heart rate variability is and measure uh, changes with time. Um, and there's also, um, as technology advances, there's now devices. I know there's a ring. I can't remember the uh, brand name for it, but it's kind of like a Fitbit that goes on your ring ring finger, but basically it uh, um, can measure your overnight uh, heart rate variability as well, um, which uh, we'll talk about in my article review, um, but overnight uh, is typically more accurate compared to first thing in the morning measurement if you have, if you have uh, access to that. So um, like I said, the main disadvantage of the optical sensors is they aren't very useful uh, when you're exercising. Um, and then it talks a little bit about how to determine your heart rate variability. Um, and so someone could look at this and very easily figure out, you know, how to, how to do that, which I just touched on, um, and, uh, how you should do it at least three or four days a week. Um, and how you can look up data so you can compare, um, your heart rate variability to, um, other people's heart rate variability. I don't think that's a as useful for people. Generally, more fit younger people have a higher heart rate variability than less fit um, or um, injured people. 
but um, a lot of that's genetically driven. And so I think it's more useful to monitor your own trends with time. So you can kind of see, you know, if your heart rate variability is decreasing and decreasing and decreasing over time, you know, okay, let's take a look at um, is my sleep off? Am I dehydrated? Am I stressed? Am I overtraining? And so it's a way to uh, give you a little feedback for that. Um, and it talks a little bit about the different measures uh, for heart rate variability. The main one to pay attention to is the root mean square of standard differences. Um, don't ask me to calculate that, but basically it's it's uh, the, the most um, uh, widely used measurement of uh, heart rate variability. There's dozens of other ones, but um, they didn't seem as practically useful. Um, so that's typically the main number that you look at when you measure your heart rate variability. So yeah, that's basically that piece. Hey, Ross, I got a, I got a question for you. So yeah. how do, uh, uh, I guess, how does this, how do you use this clinically? Is this something that, that you're using relative? I mean, the, the thing that comes to my mind, I haven't really actually heard about this before. This is the first time I've really uh, heard about um, heart rate variability. Is this something that you would use similar to like a resting heart rate from from like a, a yeah, a, a fitness uh, perspective in terms of, yeah, yeah, how, think, how fit you are or? I think clinically it would be more interesting probably to more athletic clients. So people like status post ACL, people like that who... Um, really want to monitor their training as they're ramping up to get back into more intense exercise. I have thought about incorporating this with some of the sicker populations that we see. Um, the hardest thing, I guess, would be um, compliance. You know, I don't know how compliant with people would be. In my clinic, um, it's not a very tech savvy population. Most of the people I see are over the age of 60. And so I don't use it a lot in my population with the population I see. I think it would be more something uh, if you have a pretty athletic population or a, um, a population who's very tech savvy and, and interested in uh, knowing about their training status. Runners for sure could benefit from this because it gives you an idea of whether you're overtraining or not. Um, but it's something that I would probably not measure in the clinic. It'd be something more I teach them to measure themselves. And then uh, it'd be something that they could then keep track of, maybe bring their data to me. But it's not like I'm going to measure it in clinic because that wouldn't be a useful measurement anyway, because you want to get it first thing in the morning when you're pretty relaxed, if that makes sense. Sure. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Ross, I was actually curious, since you said that it has to be first thing in the morning. So there is like because you mentioned that the, it can be at a consistent time. I was curious if it has to has to be strictly the first thing in the morning or like, can it when, still, like, if you see a patient consistently at a certain time of the day, are you still okay to like do that for them if that is something that might be beneficial? Because honestly, when you talked about this, like the first thing that I could think of is I was uh, reading a conversation about post-COVID patients and a lot of them developing POTS. So mm -hmm. that is like a big thing that goes on. That I mean, with POTS, like heart rate is what is like jumping up with the change in position. So that's why I was curious, like, okay, is there a way to like apply this resource to that kind of population? You know, that's an interesting thought. And I actually haven't really looked into, um, you know, how heart rate variability plays into POTS. Um, I would almost wonder if they 
Well, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know if they would have more variability because, uh, um, but yeah, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, I'm not sure, I guess, if I answer, you know, I don't know if you'd want to be doing it in clinics still, like I said, just because there is that, um, that variability day to day. And a lot of times people have different appointment times and, you know, if they're running around and doing groceries before or versus whether they come straight to your clinic, are they sitting for 15 minutes before you do it? Um, and so it's an interesting idea and uh, it's something that, you know, that might be worth looking into the research and see if there's any anything out there on that for POTS. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like even like even if it is not like, you know, from on a day to day uh, basis, like even if it is something that's that you're doing as during your session, like measuring pre-post or something like that with each change in position or with each activity. So I'm just curious. And yeah. this time, like I haven't researched all that much into POTS either, but I just saw that there was an interesting conversation that I was reading about as far mm -hmm. as seeing a lot of POTS in post-COVID people. And actually like even uh, therapists who have recovered from COVID have been patients with POTS. Yeah. So that's where I was like, okay, maybe if if there's any way that you know, like we can possibly apply this, that would be a good. Well, if someone if someone had a baseline, I suppose it would also be interesting to see pre-COVID, you know, what their heart rate variability looked like after COVID and how long it took to get back to, uh, I guess, their pre-COVID baseline. But for that, um, you would need to have that baseline. I guess is the disadvantage too. But yeah, it was interesting. Interesting points. Okay, well, um, since um, our research uh, reviews are mostly tied to our resources, um, I know that this is a very interesting article coming up, Reliability and Sensitivity of Nocturnal Heart Rate and Heart Rate Variability Monitoring Individual Responses to Training Load, which is related to your heart rate variability article. So I'll let you talk about it, Ross. Yeah, so uh, this study, I think it kind of piggybacked off of a randomized controlled trial. So they were in um, analyzing data in runners who um, had their heart rate variability measured. And it was in response to low intensity exercise that was done very consistently a certain time of day. And then they were looking at whether um, your full night or four hour, so first four hours of the night, full night or first thing in the morning, heart rate variability monitoring was most accurate for uh, detecting changes uh, in response to those training loads. And they found that the full night and four, first four hours of the night were both very good and equally good, really. Um, and both were better than the first thing in the morning measures. Um, and then they found that the high intensity train, so that's something I forgot to touch on at the other piece, the high intensity, anytime you do a really high intensity training session, there's kind of a perturbation in your heart rate variability that lasts for a longer period of time compared to low intensity. So typically um, when you do high intensity exercise, you can expect to have decreased heart rate variability and more sympathetic uh, nervous system activity for the first 48 hours or so. And uh, with low intensity, it only typically is affected for more like 24 hours, which is essentially what they found with this study as well. Um, but uh, essentially they just, the general take home point from this is if you do have access to overnight monitoring, if you're wanting to do this, that's better than first thing in the morning. And uh, they still don't, you know, completely have nailed down like how much, you know, should your heart rate variability get back to completely normal before you train again? Some of that, some of those answers still need to be, um, some of those questions still need to be answered. So um, 
so yeah, it was kind of an interesting study, just kind of uh, looking at the accuracy of different measures for heart rate variability. Great, thank you so much for touching on that. And I like like Troy mentioned, I I never knew much about this either, so this was quite eye opening for me too. So I'm I'm definitely going to go look into this. Yeah, it's very interesting for sure. Cool. So moving on, our next resource is a nice one-page handout about symptoms of differentiation and difference, I'm sorry, symptoms and differentiation of leg pain. Since this resource was created by Troy, I will let Troy talk about this. Yeah, great. Um, so, so yeah, you nailed it. It's, uh, this is really meant to be a quick and easy differentiation of some common um, pathologies, I suppose, associated with, with leg pain or lower extremity pain. So, you know, I think this, this handout is probably, I think it maybe serves kind of two uh, different uh, kind of populations in terms of, of clinicians and patients and things like that. I think, I think this is helpful for the newer clinician uh, probably maybe somebody that's uh, that's kind of just uh, just getting started or uh, new to an outpatient type setting or new to um, kind of differential diagnoses um, specifically uh, that and I think also for the patient that is maybe investigating things on their own to some degree right um, or maybe a consultation that comes in or somebody that just has some quick questions this can be a nice resource it's very easy to read. Um, for both uh, medical professionals, but I also think lay laypersons as well. Um, so it really talks about pretty much uh, four four different things. So vascular claudication, um, meaning there's not enough uh, oxygen ultimately getting to the legs, um, which is causing pain. Um, it's talking about neurogenic pain as well. So this is you know driven from. Uh, often in this case, really nerve root compression or compression um, on a peripheral nerve. Um, peripheral neuropathy, which is uh, really damage to those peripheral nerves as well. Um, that's, that's uh, yeah, we'll talk about um, the specifics of it. And then restless leg syndrome. So um, those are the four different diagnoses that yeah, that it goes into. So vascular claudication, what you're really looking for here more than anything else is um, it's often bilateral in nature. So these other ones, restless leg syndrome, you know, you could have some bilateral pain in that peripheral neuropathy and neurogenic claudication. Um, they can have bilateral symptoms too, but this vascular claudication is often both legs. It's often kind of a burning type sensation that's, um, yeah, that can be pretty uncomfortable. And it normally occurs after a little bit of exercise. So this isn't something that someone experiences when they're resting, right? Rest is going to uh, often decrease the symptoms associated with this. We talked about ankle brachial index earlier. Um, vascular claudication would be a symptom of peripheral vascular disease, which again would be um, indicate or, or would be associated with um, specific ABI values. So if there's plaque and, and uh, fatty deposits in the extremities, there's enough blood getting to those muscles, no pain when I'm just kind of feet up um, and relaxing. Maybe even when I walk from, uh, um, you know, from 
one end of my house to the other end, maybe I still do okay with that. The demands on my legs aren't that high, but maybe going out for a walk around the block or to the mailbox or something that's a little bit farther away, I start to experience those symptoms come back. Now rest, the oxygen demand uh, decreases on my legs uh, or on those on those muscles and, and my pain starts to, to reside. So it talks about the description of what it is, the signs and symptoms, um, the location of those symptoms, what aggravates it, what makes it feel better, and then the cause kind of of the pathology, as well as, as, as you know, kind of who's likely to uh, be experiencing these things. Neurogenic claudication, this is something that I that I think a lot of people are actually pretty familiar with, right? This is this is your your patient that reports, you know, um, I have my back's bad and I'm having pain that's going down one side of my leg, or I'm having pain maybe just going down the side of my leg and they don't make an association with the back. This is normally, um, you know, it can be tingling, uh, also burning, sharp, numbness, that kind of sensation. Um, but in general, you're not going to see, uh, you're not going to see things like, um, uh, um, uh, you're not going to see things like color changes that you might in vascular claudication. Um, you're going to see uh, discomfort that's maybe not associated with activity, but could be associated with position. Uh, so, right, if I'm stressing the lumbar spine in some way, um, uh, you know, we could co be causing compression on some of those nerves and, and um, yeah, causing discomfort. Um, peripheral neuropathies. So this is often more associated with some other condition, right? Peripheral neuropathy is, is, you know, the most common thing that people probably think of is diabetes mellitus, right? Um, the other common ones would be, um, uh, like I, I see several, you know, quite a few folks actually post chemotherapy that will sometimes have neuropathy in their extremities. Um, HIV, uh, can cause neuropathy and paresthesias. This is, uh, um, yeah, this is, Pain or and or numbness often is what it turns into um, in in the legs. It's normally in a stocking glove kind of pattern, meaning it doesn't fo follow those uh, dermatomal patterns, but it's rather um, you know the the everything distal to a certain point on the on the leg. Um, it, it would affect distally before it would affect proximally um, as well. And then restless leg syndrome. Um, yeah, so this is this is discomfort. Most people experience this uh, more so in the evenings in moments of stillness than they do actually um, with with moving around. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's pain that can last. You know, it's pretty highly variable in terms of how much discomfort uh, folks have with this. Um, there's been a couple of studies that show that you know caffeine. Um, can can cause uh, some of these this discomfort, so potentially cutting out some of that can maybe be helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, it's about symptom reduction, um, medication management, diet management, probably more than uh, musculoskeletal um, kind of treatment approaches. Great, thank you, Troy. All right, moving on. Um, our next resource is dry needling for lateral epicondylitis. And um, it's a needle two-page handout, which actually has some 
very informative pictures about dry needling. So since Ross was the one who produced this handout, I'll have Ross talk about it a little bit. Off to you, Ross. Yeah, um, so uh, the uh, orthopedic section of the uh, American Physical Therapy Association released uh, clinical practice guidelines for um, lateral epicondylitis, uh, I believe in December pretty recently. Um, and one of the, there was no, no single treatment that had grade A evidence, meaning a preponderance of uh, high quality randomized controlled trials. And there were several treatments that had grade B evidence, uh, meaning that there was at least one high quality randomized con controlled trial to support it or a preponderance of lower level studies. And one thing that they um, suggested might be helpful is dry needling. And uh, something I have taken some interest in because there's so many different types of uh, needling techniques for um, lateral epicondylopathy that you see in the research. And so um, I thought I would talk about some that have shown um, benefit within the research, and then also talked about some of the evidence for uh, dry needling. Um, so the first section kind of talks, it's, it's mostly, uh, this one's purely geared towards clinicians, by the way, um, but the first section um, talks about, um, you know, the evidence for dry needling compared to some other treatments. So dry needling compared to corticosteroids, typically dry needling actually outperforms corticosteroids in the long term. Granted, corticosteroids, we know, break down tissue. So most things will outperform corticosteroids. Keep that in mind. Um, and then compared to some of the fancier uh, regenerative medicine techniques like platelet-rich plasma, dry needling is equally effective and it's a lot cheaper. And so um, especially because uh, with lateral epicondylopathy, the uh, traditional isotonic loading that we use for a lot of tendinopathies does not seem to be quite as much of a slam dunk as it is for, um, for lateral epicondylitis. So having some other treatment options can be helpful. Um, so uh, one other study that I thought was interesting is they did uh, ultrasound guided dry needling where they targeted the extensor tendons, the areas of tendinosis. The idea is you're taking a chronic injury, turning it into a more acute injury so that your body actually addresses it and tries to heal. And they found that the dry needling was just as effective as open release surgery. Um, and so uh, it's kind of interesting and uh, still research developing on all of that. Um, so I outlined three uh, protocols that can be used for dry needling. So um, I talked about a uh, and I also put in there that uh, this isn't supposed to really replace training in dry needling. So you want to have training in dry needling. And uh, if you do uh, ultrasound guided dry needling, then you also want training in ultrasound imaging before you do it. Um, but this can just give you some ideas as to what has worked in the research. So I talk about the muscular technique, um, which is uh, uh, was based on a study uh, that was actually discussed last month. Uh, uh, where they were, were comparing it to percutaneous electrolysis. Um, the percutaneous electrolysis worked better, but this still uh, provided moderate pain relief. Um, at a 25% improvement in three quarters of, of uh, people after treatment. Um, and so it outlines how uh, to kind of needle the supinator and the common extensors for that. And then it talks about uh, one study that used... Uh, Tendon technique, um, it talks about the dosage um, that was used in one trial. Uh, this was the study that uh, 
was comparing to corticosteroid injections and finding that the uh, tendon needling more effective than the corticosteroid in, uh, uh, injection. And then the last one talks a little bit about um, the study that compared the ultrasound guided needling to open release surgery. And that was dose just one treatment. Um, and uh, 80, I think it was 81% of the people who had it uh, had good results and uh, reduced pain after uh, having it done. In that study, um, they used a larger needle. So I talk a little bit about how you would want to dose since in PT, we're using a monofilament needle. It's about three times smaller than the needle they used in the study. And so you'd have to do probably three times as many passes if you wanted to have the same relative dose to the tendon. Um, and so it kind of outlines how you would do that. So yeah, that's that piece. Yeah, great. I think the pictures are a good um, refresher for people who have done dry needling or you know taken courses or certified, but then they have something to look at in case they're looking for that placement, that visual feedback. And it's it's a great handout to show patients too, to like help them understand that this is what I'm going to be doing and this is how it's going to look and things like that. Get them more prepped. I think that's like visually it's very appealing. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives you uh, some information, you know, as far as how frequently they did in some of these trials and whether they were left in place or twisted or things like that as well. Absolutely. Great. Well, now we're going to, since we've been talking a lot about our resources, we always want to talk, wrap up with some like a case study to show that how we can use the other resources in our access pass library, as well as discuss cases from different perspectives. So um, the case that we're going to be talking about today is um, ba loosely based on a patient that I was working with until recently, a 70 year old male with Parkinson's disease living with his spouse in a single level home, loves to play golf with friends and wants to get back to it. He has been having a lot of difficulty with movement because of an increase in his frequency of freezing episodes and he's requiring increased time to move after freezing. So based on this case, um, the handout that I felt was appropriate, and this is something that I shared with my patient as well, was how to stop freezing with Parkinson's disease. Now, um, because this patient was so frustrated with like his freezing episodes increasing and him, it was really impacting how he was trying to play golf and how, how much he really enjoyed golf because that was like his only means of like letting out all their frustration from Parkinson's. So when I discussed this handout with the patient and with his wife, he actually mentioned, oh, I do enjoy music. And I never really realized that that would be something that would be helpful to my freezing. So maybe I'll give that a try. But um, like music has been helpful to a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease in general. But other than that, I feel like marching, shifting your weight from side to side, some of the really useful strategies from this handout, even ste imagining stepping over a line or doing those small movements, not just in your lower extremity, but also in your upper extremity, your head turns or your shoulder movements or body movements to just kind of slowly try to get out of that freezing 
Um, I think it's been very helpful for my patient. And I know that these are strategies that could be used by a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease. Like if one doesn't work out, there are many other options that they can still try. So that's about that. And based on my case study, um, Ross came up with one of the resources from our Access Pass library as well. Uh, it's called Home Exercise Tips for People with Parkinson's. So I'm going to let Ross talk about that. Yeah, um, I see some Parkinson's disease at uh, our clinic. And uh, um, a lot of times uh, we're focused in clinic on uh, kind of specific things. We don't always have time to kind of go into, you know, different stretches and things. Um, especially with 40 minute appointments, a lot of times it's like your big training and balance training takes up a portion of the day and you don't always have time to get into some of these things. And so I kind of liked a lot of the visuals with this where it's like um, showing uh, different stretches that you can do to uh, um, improve mobility since a lot of people with Parkinson's tend to get pretty stiff through their hips and back. Um, talks about general strength training guidelines that can be helpful. Um, to kind of reinforce some of what we tell them in the clinic, um, uh, goes into functional training and then talks about, uh, cardiorespiratory training as well, which, uh, um, again, that's not always something we have time to focus on as much. And so I kind of thought it's a nice adjunct to, uh, some of the treatment we do in clinic for, uh, Parkinson's. Great. And um, again, based on my case study, um, we had Troy pick out his favorite resource too from our Access Pass library. And um, this one is called Evidence-Based Practice for Individuals with Parkinson's Disease. It's a neat little handout and I'm gonna have Troy talk about it. Yeah, great. Um, so, so this handout is, I mean, really is kind of part of a series. There's a few different handouts on a few different diagnoses, but I pulled this one out um, is with, yeah, which is for individuals with Parkinson's disease. Really it's for you as a clinician. Um, this is a dry one, but it, this is one that lives on my bulletin board in front of my computer when I'm writing goals. Um, one of my least favorite things to do is look up MDCs and MCIDs to be able to write evidence-based goals for my patients with different diagnoses, right? I work with a lot of folks with neurologic impairment, Parkinson's disease being one of them. So things like, you know, if I'm trying to improve community ambulation, I do a lot of six minute walk tests, but guess what? It's not the same for somebody with Parkinson's disease versus vestibular dis uh, disorders or versus, uh, you know, folks with stroke or things like that. So I'm always going back and, you know, finding, okay, is this an actual meaningful change for this patient um, based on their diagnosis or not? That's what this sheet is for and others like it for other diagnoses. Um, so it goes through, uh, um, yeah, it's just a table with, uh, with a variety of different objective outcome measures um, that, that are easily uh, performed in the clinic. And then talks about what exactly you need to be able to do that. I really try to um, pretty much use uh, assessments that are accessible, are evidence-based, obviously, um, and that are free. Uh, you know, some some high quality assessments are also cost money. Um, we don't have any of those on there uh, on this one, um, but you can go through it. You can look up 
Um, not only it is the improvement that they made uh, evidence-based, um, you can also uh, kind of base it off of what hone and yar stage they're in. So is this outcome measure actually even appropriate and applicable for the level of disability that my patient is experiencing at, at this phase and in, in their disease process? Um, so yeah, love, love the resources like this. It's just a quick, easy thing for me to, to write up goals. I found this really cool, Troy, because um, like this gave me an idea that we could actually even make like tables very specific to different diagnoses and just like this. It would be very handy as far as, you know, like, again, like you mentioned, like writing goals and looking at measures and you have everything all in one place and you don't really have to wait to like look it up or this is something that you can even show the patients that like, this is what I'm doing and this is how effective it is. So when we actually look for like change, any kind of change over a period of time, this is what we're aiming at and things like, I think that gives them a good visual too. So. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you mentioned, you know, helpful for other diagnoses, you know, we, we've got a few on there. They're all more neurologic uh, diagnoses in general, but um, yeah, I think they're helpful ones. Cool. So before we wrap up today, I do want to mention that we, there were some other resources that were added to our library that you all might be interested in, um, like our OT um, content team added a resource on abdominal precautions. Um, it's a neat little handout again, which has like the different positions that you can adopt with the abdominal, maintaining your abdominal precautions and also has like a um, small four point table, which tells you like what you need to follow when you're following abdominal precautions and trying to change positions. So do check that out. We also had another um, cool resource from our SLP medical SLP team on the safety features of an Apple Watch. Uh, it has a nice pros and cons table, and it talks all about fall detection, emergency services, and GPS tracking as far as Apple Watch is concerned. And I think that yeah, like a lot of our patients who are really getting into technology would find this very helpful. So do check that out if that's something that you would love to share with your patients. Okay, so I just wanted to say thank you to Ross and Troy for again coming and talking about the resources and ways that we can apply this in our clinic. And to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We will be back with another Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap show. All you therapists out there, thank you so much for making therapy informative, empowering, and person-centered. See you next time.